From National Securities Corporation, it's the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, where we discuss insights and trends from an investment banking perspective with the investors, corporate leaders, and other stakeholders participating in the industries that grow, process, and market the food that we consume. I'm Ivan Saval, and I oversee the Agribusiness and Food Coverage Group, providing capital markets and financial advisory. All podcast episodes are for informational purposes only and are not to be construed as a solicitation of securities. Any thoughts expressed by myself and or our guests are solely our own and are not those of National Securities Corporation. In this episode, we will be discussing the organic fluid milk industry with the Chief Financial Officer of Aurora Organic Dairy, Cami Mueller. We will explore where the industry is currently, the opportunities that present themselves, and where value might be for investors looking at the sector. Cami, thank you for joining us. I think what might be interesting is for you to give a brief overview of Aurora and just talk a little bit about its history. Thanks, Ivan. Aurora Organic Dairy is the leading producer of store brand organic milk and butter in the U.S., we sell our products to large retailers and we distribute nationally. Mm-hmm. We're based in Boulder, Colorado, and we've got facilities in Colorado and Texas. What's unique about us is that we're vertically integrated. We operate both organic dairy farms and a milk plant, so we think of it as cow to carton. We're very grounded in organic agriculture, so animal care and sustainable production are the cornerstones of our business. We're certified organic by the U.S. We're USDA certified organic, and we also carry a third-party animal welfare certification from Validus. I've been with Aurora for about 10 years, and as CFO, I oversee accounting, finance, and IT. I've been in the natural and organic foods industry for about 20 years. And uh, before I joined Aurora, I was director of finance, and I was treasurer for Wild Oats Markets, mm-hmm. which was a leading retailer in the natural and organic space and was acquired by Whole Foods. When I came to Aurora about 10 years ago, I knew a lot about selling milk, but I didn't know much about producing it. And uh, organic dairy at the time was still a small growing market, but I saw that there was a lot of growth potential. I believed in the business model, and so I wanted to be part of it. You mentioned that you're you're in Colorado. Uh, Is there any specific reason why you think the company is in in Colorado? Is that strategically a a geographic uh, area that makes a lot of sense? Colorado's in the high plains, and so it's a very ideal environment to produce milk. It's um, for the cows, it's a very good environment. They like things to be dry. They like, um, they don't do well in, in, in big extremes temp- of temperature, too hot or too cold. Um, so there's a lot of dairy in Colorado and Idaho in the western U.S. So it's a great place to be. And I would imagine it's, it's rather spacious to reach scale in terms of the availability of, of geographic footprint that you need for organic? Yeah, I mean, as a, so, so as a scale producer, uh, we are looking for and want a large land footprint to support our operations. It takes a lot of land to support an organic dairy operation, and it's easier to find big chunks of land, big tracts of land in the west than it is as you move further east. And, and what are some of the rules that, that govern organic? How is it, you need pasture, you need uh, a certain amount of acreage? Just to be curious to understand that a little bit better. Um, so to be certified organic, to produce milk that's certified organic, you have to first, the cows have to be on land that's certified organic. And to be organic, the land has to have gone through a three-year transition. 
where it's managed under organic uh, system practices. What that means is no herbicides or pesticides, chemical herbicides or pesticides have been used on that land for three years. In addition, the herd itself has to be organic, so they have to be managed under the organic rules, which means the feed they grow has to be certified organic, and then there's rules around the animals themselves, how they're managed. There's no artificial hormones or um, antibiotics that can be used um, in the herd. They have to eat 100% USDA certified organic feed. Mm -hmm. um, so that also plays into it, and pasture is a big component. They have to graze um, a minimum of 120 days. Wow! And um, so that, and it has to be a meaningful uh, percentage of their feet of their diet during the grazing season. So I mean, all of that goes into the definition of organic. It, it sort of sounds like the organic uh, uh, segment is sort of the, the premier segment to, to sort of strive towards in this whole movement towards natural and less processed foods. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah, that's a fair understanding. Um, you know, I think consumers are looking for products that are uh, minimally processed and have minimal inputs. And uh, that's why there's been a lot of uh, consumer interest in organics themselves, because without all the, the, we think of them, some people refer to them as the three no's, no antibiotics, no hormones, no artificial pesticides or herbicides. Um, you know, that's what consumers are looking for in um, products that they purchase. Okay. Well, yeah, I've always thought that organic was a, a relatively recent phenomenon, um, especially in the, in the fluid milk category. Uh, or maybe I'm thinking it from the perspective of, of capital being interested in the space, call it less than 10 years. Um, but, you know, one that is considered to be, you know, a fad or, or perhaps uh, short-lived. But today it seems to be more generally accepted as a here-to-stay category. Can you sort of explain your views as to uh, you know what you think is changing the consumer to support the sustainability and growth in the organic fluid milk category? Well, first of all, organics have been around for over 30 years, so it's um, it's a phenomenon that's that's been growing for some time. Um, the Organic Foods Production Act was passed in 1990. That's the law that created standards for organic and food production, um, and and put the program under the USDA. Uh, it's estimated today that about three-quarters of U.S. consumers buy organic products, and our organic dairy itself has grown at a double-digit annual growth rate for the past decade or so. Our history in organic goes back to 1992. Um, we began producing organic milk for what is today one of the, today, the leading brands today. Wow, in 1992. 1992. That's quite yeah. a history, yeah. Yeah, so we've been in the business, Aurora's been in the business for a long time. Um, the Organic Trade Association just released its most recent industry report this week, actually, as a matter of fact, and uh, I thought maybe I'd give you a couple of statistics. Okay. Um, so these are for 2015. Um, organic food sales were almost $40 billion last year, so um, it's, it's, a lar it's, a, it's still a very much a growing market and was up 11% year over year. Um, dairy, which is the second biggest organic food category, produce is the largest. Mm -hmm. um, dairy was $6 billion and it increased over 10% as well. And dairy accounts for about 15% of overall organic food sales. Why do you think that is, that dairy is such a large piece of the organic food sales? Um, it, I think it's because um, consumers are looking, you know, the, the, the popular, the gateway segments into organic are the, the products that are, are fresh and are consumed most frequently. 
So that's why produce and dairy are really the two gateway categories mm -hmm. into organics. Okay. Um, fluid milk sales comprise about 60% of all organic dairy sales. That's very different than conventional. Conventional is very dominated by cheese, whereas organic is dairy is largely a fluid. Wow, that's interesting. A fluid market. Um, but when you look across the U.S., organic fluid sales are only about 5% of all fluid sales sold, so, and, but it's growing and it's gaining wow. share. So it's only 5% of total yeah. milk market share. So there's a lot of runway left. A lot of runway. You know, I can understand the, the fluid milk, uh, why in organic, that's a larger segment than conventional. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of parents of, of young children probably are flocking to the organic milk <laughs> category to feed their, their young yeah. children. I'm a good example of, you know, pro our typical consumer. I have two kids. We drink organic milk. We buy organic produce. I'm your... I'm yeah, your, you're the target market. I'm the target market right here. <laughs> As am I. Um, so what, what are the drivers behind all of this? Um, well, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but I think people want minimally processed food with minimal inputs. They want to know what's in their food, where it came from, and how it was produced. Um, for example, you know, we talked about, you know, in organic dairy, we don't use synthetic pesticides, herbicides, or fertilizer, and it applies really to the entire supply chain um, from the feed to the pasture all the way to the cows. Uh, I think people choose organic milk because they want to avoid these inputs. Mm -hmm. You know, back to this 5% of the market share, I think that's such an interesting number to sort of keep in perspective uh, the, the size uh, of the industry and the, and, and the growth of the industry and the potential, uh, even more importantly. But, you know, to grow, you know, into double digits of, of the total market, I would have to think you're going to face significant challenges from the conventional uh, dairies uh, that, that may want to sort of combat the organic movement with going to sort of a natural non-GMO type category, not, not purely organic, but natural. Um, how do you see these challenges uh, as potential opportunities? Well, first of all, the barriers to entry to organic dairy production are significant, whether it's the land footprint, we talked about that at a little bit at the beginning, or the cost to transition from conventional to organic, or just the you know, ongoing burden to stay in compliance. To be certified organic, at land's got to go through a three-year transition, and, um, and then there's a, a series of rules that we have to comply by that's not required for conventional. For example, our farms are inspected and certified annually, and the inspection's pretty comprehensive. It covers all aspects of our operation. And it takes, in addition, you know, it takes two years for a cow to mature to an age to where they're able to produce milk. So you can't just decide you want to increase your organic milk supply tomorrow and go out and acquire the land and the cows. It takes yeah. time and planning. Um, and it takes a significant amount of investment. You know, you have to plan years in the future if you want to grow, and that's what we do at Aurora. But, you know, I will tell you that even with the barriers to entry and the long-term planning, the industry we do still experience periods of shortage and, sur and surplus. Milk's a commodity, and, and to some extent, organic dairy, organic milk is a little bit of a commodity too, although it's still viewed by retailers as a premium product in their store, and so it's marketed that way. Um, the industry itself still experiences some of the same you know, supply and demand dynamics as a conventional milk. And swings in the conventional industry do um, attract and deter interest in organics and investment in organics. Um, so when conventional dairy is at a low point in the cycle like today, I mean, milk prices, class one prices are very low and there is a surplus 
Um, I think the Wall Street Journal had an article that came out this week about cheese stocks. Um, organic production does look appealing, and you'll see a lot of, 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 of money and investment starting to shift into organic. And, you know, with too many entrants can saturate the market until, until demand catches up. But there's still a lot of opportunity there. So when you mention investment, um, so help me understand, where is the bottleneck uh, in organic dairy production and, and where, you know, in, in terms of the bottleneck, that might be an opportunity for potential investors to provide solutions. Um, so in, in, in your mind, where do you think the, the, the bottleneck is in, in, in the operation? I think it's on the feed side. The feed side, yeah. Yeah, I think um, you know, it, and the feed. It really, if you if you try, if you go back one step, it's really the amount of organic acres, land that's organic, certified organic. Um, there's a lot of competition for organic corn, for example. So, um, we compete with um, organic poultry. Um, we compete with um, you know other organic protein. Um, operations for that same corn, um, but just having enough land in the U.S. to provide all the feed is a real challenge. There's there's um, there's a fair amount of feed that's imported, and um, and so it, you know, but there's not enough, and yeah. that and that's ultimately when you trace it all the way through the supply chain, that's constrained supply. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, you know, I see the the growth on the consumer side. Um, I, I often wonder how how the how the consumer branded side will continue its growth in, until it solves the supply chain issues. So, are, are you seeing any movement on on acreage being converted to organic? Um, we are seeing some interest on the dairy side in dairy production, but we aren't seeing as much movement on the land side as it relates to feed production. Um, I think you find the similar dynamics, you know, in commodity and feed commodities as you do like what we experience in dairy production in that when corn prices are high, there's very little interest um, by farmers to convert their land to organic because they make a nice profit at the current conventional prices and, and there's no incentive because there's a cost to transition. Yeah. You have to farm it three years organically, but you can only sell those crops conventionally. Oh, wow. So you, you lose... You lose money for three years um, until you can start to market that product as USDA certified organic. So, with corn prices coming down, you know when conventional prices are low, then there's there's more of an incentive. There's more economic favorable economics for somebody to convert their land and go and move to organic production. And are you sort of hearing in, uh, through the grapevine that, that farmers are actually considering converting? We hear a little bit, but I don't think it's enough. Yeah. That, and me too. I, I, I think that there's still um, a lot of opportunity for uh, conversion to organic to meet this need. Yep, I think um, so. And I, th I say that because, uh, you know, I, I think this is becoming uh, a here-to-stay uh, trend. How, how do you foresee the future of this consumer taste and preference movement toward more natural foods, non-GMO, uh, and how do you think that's affecting the organic category? Well, there's a lot of consumer interest in the traits that organic has to offer. I mean, in my opinion, organic's the gold standard. Um, and there's a lot of other labeling claims out there that's creating a lot of, frankly, it's creating a lot of consumer confusion. Um, you know, whether it's natural, it's non-GMO, it's cage-free, or, you know, whatever. Um, 
there's a lot of activity around labeling GMOs. You're starting to see non-GMOs on more and more products. Organic production doesn't allow GMOs at all. Um, so if something's labeled USDA organic, it is by definition non-GMO. But I don't think a lot of consumers necessarily know that or realize that. And if you translate that to organic dairy, it not only it means that the feed that the cows eat have to be has to be non-GMO as well. Um, so you know while there are consumer trends around other labeling claims, I think some of those are going to come and go. Um, but organic has the strongest foundation, especially with the the structure of the USDA behind it. Mm -hmm. I think it gives it a lot of credibility and sets the standard for for quality for minimally processed and minimal input products. You know, the challenge that we as an industry face is making sure that education around organic continues so that consumers, we can clarify some of the confusion around all the other production claims that are out there yeah. and that consumers really understand the benefit of organics and they understand what that USDA seal really means and what it stands for. And um, so I think that's a big challenge, but that's what the industry has got to do. Yeah, I think there is a lot of confusion out there, especially in the grocery yeah. store, seeing the difference between natural uh, and, and organic. But it's an opportunity. If, yeah. you know, if we can do continue to educate the consumer about what organic offers, what it does, and the fact that it offers what they're seeking, then you know, they don't need to look elsewhere. The uh, conventional side, I don't know so much about the organic pricing side, but on the conventional side, they've they're in somewhat of a down cycle with, um, with their pricing. Um, ha has any of that leaked over into organic fluid milk pricing or have you been able to sort of hold your levels? Uh, we've been able to hold our levels so far. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what, so what happens when conventional pricing comes down is you see the gap, the price gap from organic to conventional widen. Um, it historically has trended in between one and a half and three times. If you say two is probably the average, meaning that a half gallon of organic milk is about twice the cost at retail of a, of a gallon of conventional milk. Um, Where are we today, do you think? You know, I haven't looked at the statistics. I would guess that we're probably on the wider end of that margin, given okay. where class one prices are today. Um, one of the things that... Um, we've seen in organic is that it started to shift more towards private brand and I think when that price gap widens you will see consumers shift towards private brand within the organics category. Um, private brand's been a big part of the growth in, mm -hmm. of organic milk. And you are all um, private brand. We're right? all private brand. Yeah. Um, we don't have any brand at all. So um, 10 years ago private brand was less than 10% of all organic milk sold and today it's about 40. Wow. And you compare that to the conventional side, about two-thirds of all fluid milk sold is private brand, and it's been that way for a long time. So there's also a lot of runway within the dairy category of moving toward private brand. So when, when the economics make um, organic more expensive relative to conventional, I think you will see some trading within the organic category down to private brand, but you don't see people trading down to conventional. Yeah. It's, it's one of those products that once the consumer enters the segment, they will give up on other things, but they won't give up their organic milk. Interesting. You know, I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I see that in our family. So what's next for the uh, U.S. organic dairy industry? Um, well, I see consumer demand continuing to grow. Um, and now you've got the millennials who were raised on organics. So, oh, yes. so for them, it's just part of 
their vocabulary and it's part of what they expect. Um, I think organic penetration in the U.S. is going to increase. If you look across the world, there are pockets of organic penetration that are a lot greater than here still. Um, Western Europe's a good example. I don't know the percentages exactly, but I know that it's, you know, it's more than the 5% or so that you see in the U.S. And then there's a, a lot of tension draw, going to other or markets where organic is relatively small, such as Asia or Eastern Europe. Um, so if you, you, know, you look at what's going on there, there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, I think a lot of investment will be required if you start from the supply chain of the land footprint to the cows to the processing, ass to the processing assets that are needed. But I also see where there's investment that's needed on the demand side as well in terms of new products. Um, we've got to go beyond fluid milk. And yeah. I think consumers are going to expect us to go beyond fluid milk to stay um, relevant and, and to keep up with their preferences. Mm -hmm. And I think consumer education is another thing we are, we're going to, as an industry, have to invest in to, to make sure that we're answering the consumer questions that are being raised and to, to overcome some of the confusion that's starting to be created by some of the other labeling initiatives that are out there. I think these are what's going to drive the industry. Yeah. Wow, very interesting. Well, look, Cami, I think uh, this has been quite insightful. I know I've learned a lot, and I think that uh, our investors will appreciate uh, this conversation as well. So thank you very much for your time, and uh, uh, we look forward to uh, touching base on other opportunities. Great. Thank you, Ivan. All right. Thank you. This is Ivan Sabal, host of the Agribusiness Advisor podcast and managing director of the Investment Bank of National Securities Corporation. Please stay tuned for future episodes.